We'll continue our series in 1 Peter. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Rejoicing in suffering now and when Christ shall be revealed. Quite a long title that, isn't it? Rejoicing in suffering now and when Christ shall be revealed. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through to 19. I'll read those verses for you right now. Verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall be the end, what shall the end be, of them that obey not the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. The British Isles used to be um, culturally Christian. However, times have changed and our fair land, in line with many other Western democracies, is now populated by many people who think that you are rather odd, to say the least, if you are a practising Christian. I say practising Christian, you've got a faith that can be seen a faith that can be seen in your con- conduct and heard in your words. Furthermore, there are those who think that you are a narrow-minded bigot if, as a practising Christian, you oppose abortion and various other evils such as sexual immorality in all its forms, including same-sex marriage. The Apostle Peter has already dealt with the opposition from the ungodly in previous verses. For example, looking at verses 3 and 4. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. That's how it is. People think it's strange 
that you do not indulge in the sinful activities that they revel in, or at the very least that they give their approval to. However, Peter was far from done with this subject. In fact, he stepped it up in verse 12, when he said, looking at verse 12 there, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. With verse 3 and verse 4 in mind, Christians are being told not to think it strange when they experience hostility from those who think it strange that they do not do the same sinful things that they do. The fiery trials would have seemed strange to those Gentile converts back then. They would not have previously experienced that kind of opposition when they lived pagan lives, living and fulfilling the lusts of men. They wouldn't have had any opposition as such. Or the converts to Christianity from Judaism people from the Jewish religion would have been watching them and thinking them strange. They too may well have considered the attitude of the Jews towards them to be somewhat strange, the converts to Christianity, to Christ. When all they had done, these people had converted from the Old Testament religion to Christianity, which Christianity is actually the fulfilment of what we read in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. And they would have thought it strange when all they had done is believe in Christ that the Jewish scriptures speak of. Scriptures such as Zechariah chapter 12 in, and verse 10 in the Old Testament where it is written, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There, in the Old Testament, that's a very clear prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was coming to come into the world. Jews became Christians, putting their trust in Jesus, and they would have thought it strange that people, um, Jews, were hostile towards them. The fact that Peter referred to their sufferings as fiery trials means that at least some of those sufferings were severe tests of faith. Three godly men who quite literally had a fiery trial in the Old Testament, three godly men, I'm sure most of us know who they are, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We've probably all heard of those three. Details are recorded in the Old Testament book of Daniel. At a time when the Jews were in Babylonian captivity, King Nebuchadnezzar made a 90 foot high golden image. And it was decreed that everyone had to bow down and worship the image at certain times. However, those three men refused to do so and they were brought before the king. The king gave them a simple choice. Bow down before the idol, before the image, or else be cast into a fiery furnace. In response, 
This is what those three men said to the king of Babylon. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They were brave, weren't they? They had a holy boldness there to to speak to the king of Babylon like that. And it really was a case of, listen, live or die, we are not going to bow down to your idols. Outside of the scriptures, history books also bear testimony to Christians quite literally having fiery trials, such as being burnt at the stake. For example... The Bible translator William Tyndale, who lived in the 16th century, was tried on a charge of heresy. And it is written in Fox's Book of Martyrs, although he deserved no death, he was condemned by virtue of the emperor's decree, made in the assembly at Augsburg. Brought forth to the place of execution, he was tied to the stake, strangled by the hangman and afterwards consumed with fire at the town of Vilvord, 1536 AD, crying at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Coming back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter said to Christians, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. If by the grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are living soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, refusing to bow the knee to the idols of this world, you can expect persecution of some sort, even if it amounts to nothing more than a few unkind words. It's not for nothing that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13, the Apostle John said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. And in John chapter 15 verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, when you look at that passage, Jesus was talking to his apostles And nearly all of them were martyred. And one might say, well, that goes with the territory. They were apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other passages that I'm going to quote which were applicable to the apostles. Even so, I'm sure the fact still remains that we needn't distance ourselves from that suffering, that by association, we're not 
bound to suffer like they did, but there is always that possibility that we will suffer, even if, as I say, it is just unkind words. Okay? When I became a Christian in my early 30s, very soon afterwards, I received from God what seemed to be my first fiery trial. Very soon after becoming a Christian, what happened was that someone who had been my best friend at school went for a meal with me in a restaurant where we both worked part-time together as students 18 years earlier, the biggest Chinese restaurant in South London. Anyway, he began to quiz me about my newfound faith in Jesus and eventually he brought up the subject of abortion. When he discovered that I had become completely opposed to baby killing, I say become opposed because I never used to be opposed, He was so appalled with me that our friendship all but ended in that restaurant. Since that fateful evening, he has tried once or twice to discredit me on social media. But that's how it is. I'm not complaining. I'm not um, crying about it. This is something that I receive as a Christian, as someone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered at the cross where he laid down his life, bearing away my filthy sins. Therefore, dear Christian, the unbelieving world, including your so-called friends and even family, may turn on you because it hates righteousness. If and when that happens, think it not strange. Ultimately, the world's hatred is directed against your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the Lord, your righteousness, who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He is the light of the world, but the world hates the light because its deeds are evil. And if you are a practicing Christian, you're trusting in Jesus for for salvation and you are following him along the path of righteousness. You are in your own little way going to be a light shining bright for Jesus. And people will not like that. They will hate it. Well look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Far from thinking the fiery trials to be strange, Peter said, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Quite honestly, I can't even remember who it was years ago. Someone reminded me, didn't remind me of that verse. I didn't know it at the time. They showed me that verse. And it was a breath of fresh air reading it. The spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. 
when you suffer for Christ's sake. That's wonderful. Beautiful words. The Lord Jesus Christ said much the same thing to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through to 12, when he said, now again, I, I, I tend to think Jesus was speaking to people who he appointed to be his apostles. Um, but anyway, we, we read it all the same and we, we can apply that to our own lives. Jesus said to them, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you the prophets, which were presumably before the apostles. But you get the message there, don't you? When you suffer for Christ's sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. The spirit of glory and of God is upon you, dear Christian. And that is wonderful, truly wonderful. It really is a tremendous privilege to endure fiery trials for Christ's sake as long as it really is for his sake and you really are suffering his reproach. In the early church, we're told in Acts chapter 5 verses 40 and 41 that when the apostles were beaten by the Jewish religious council, and they were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, apparently, as they departed, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They'd just been beaten. And they left there rejoicing. Now that turns everything upside down, doesn't it? How can the world even begin to understand this? You get a beating for Christ's sake, and you go away rejoicing that you're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Also, according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, when the Apostle Paul and his travelling companion Silas were put in the stocks in a dungeon in Philippi, they prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. They must have been pretty loud. Being in that dungeon and being yet being heard by the other prisoners. It's fair to say that those two Christians were rejoicing in their suffering. Even way back in the Old Testament times, about 1500 years before Jesus came into the world to save people like you and me, sinners. It is written in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 and 26, we heard it earlier from Les. In those verses, it is written that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. In other words, God's grace was sufficient for Moses, who by faith kept his eye on things that are not seen. This was 1,500 years before Jesus came into the world. Moses chose rather to suffer 
the reproach of Christ than to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt and all the privileges of being the adopted grandson of Pharaoh in Egypt. I think he chose the right thing. I'm sure he did. To suffer the reproach of Christ. Far better. Can you see that the happiness and the rejoicing during the fiery trials are not by command? Don't think that Peter is commanding you to rejoice and think it not strange when people do all sorts of horrible things, say all sorts of horrible things to you. It'd be pointless commanding you. Rather, they are the consequence or a consequence of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. They are a consequence of having Jesus abide by faith in your heart. And that, of course, is all by the grace of God. You cannot make Jesus abide in your heart. By faith. The faith comes from God. Jesus abiding in your heart. It's all by the grace of God. Therefore, instead of hiding your light under a bushel out of fear of being reproached for Christ's sake, embrace the fiery trials and rejoice in your suffering. Take those words literally. Take them as they are at face value. Rejoice in your suffering. For Christ's sake. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 through to 31. Jesus said. Fear not them which kill the body. But are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him. Which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, dear Christian, the fiery trials that you endure will only happen if they are God's will for you. And when they happen, you can be sure that the Son of God is with you in all of those trials. Just as sure that as the sparrow will not fall fall from the sky, apart from God's will, you will not face the fiery trials apart from God's will. And God loves you if you are trusting in his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is with you in those fiery trials. I mentioned those three Old Testament saints, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, not long ago. When they were cast into a fiery furnace for their refusal to bow down and worship the golden image, we are told that the Son of God was right there with them in that furnace. And that's how it is. Jesus is with you in your sufferings. The fact of the matter is that God is always with his redeemed in every situation that arises. As it is written in verse 14 there, the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Beautiful words. 
However, that truth becomes both a joyful experience that will never be forgotten and also a testimony of God's presence when by God's gracious decree you are cast into a fiery furnace for Christ's sake. Ultimately, God decrees that fiery trial for you. Note in verse 13 that our rejoicing in our present sufferings for Christ's sake precedes our rejoicing when his glory shall be revealed. You've got the rejoicing in your fiery trials and then looking ahead, rejoicing when his glory shall be revealed. Therefore, instead of trembling at the prospect of upsetting someone if you do the will of God, rejoice in your fiery trials as you look ahead to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's continuous, that rejoicing. Rejoice in your trials now and continue rejoicing. And then when Jesus comes again, you rejoice. There's a word of warning in this verse about suffering for unrighteousness sake. In verse 15 and 16, let's have a look at those two. Verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. So there is a word of warning there in verse 15. About suffering for, because of sin, or some kind of criminality. Various examples of unrighteousness are listed in verse 15. And if you suffer for wrongdoing, the spirit of glory and of God can hardly be said to rest upon you, can they? You'd feel very uncomfortable reading those verses, that, those words, and take, receiving any solace from those words, the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon me when I'm involved in sin or some kind of crime. When you suffer for some, for some unrighteous reason, that is hardly an occasion for happiness and rejoicing. Rather, it is a time for repentance, as the enemies of Christ waste no time at all, blaming not just you, but the whole church for the things you have done wrong. The world is watching us, and they will pounce on you and the whole church if you are involved in some kind of unrighteousness or law-breaking. Therefore, you need to be careful what you do. It's not black and white here, by the way. You need to be careful what you do and what you don't do. For example, it is incumbent upon Christians to be in subjection to the civil authorities and to obey the law of the land or else suffer the consequences. And you may have to suffer those consequences. However, there may well be times when to obey the law of the land would be a violation of God's will. Ultimately, God's will uh, and God's law is about love. A love of God and a love of your neighbour. In which case, the right course of action is to do the will of God and 
suffer the consequences when they come along. You'll have to make these decisions, these judgments. For example, when the apostles were ordered not to teach in the name of Jesus, they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. As was mentioned earlier, they rejoiced and they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Furthermore, according to Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Therefore, they demonstrated that they had no intention of complying with any edict from the religious authorities or from anyone else that forbade them from preaching the gospel of Christ. 2,000 years later, and various local authorities now have bylaws that undermine and restrict the God-given mandate that Christians have to go into highways and to bid people to the marriage of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, the commission that we've been given by Christ to preach the gospel, to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. There are restrictions in place and hoops that you have to jump through at times. And when you do that, you may receive a sorry but no at the end of it, once you've jumped through those hoops. However, the answer to those local authorities is very simple. We ought to obey God rather than men. However, this calls for wisdom and good old common sense. For example, if there is a coronavirus lockdown in place or there are restrictions in place with regards going out, restrictions which apply not just to Christians but to everyone. So it's not just Christians who want to go out and have a a service or do some evangelism but the restrictions are there on everybody because of the situation as it is with the virus. Then I would say that compliance with the authorities is in order. Therefore, provided that you suffer as a Christian and not as a criminal, unless you are deemed to be a criminal when you obey God rather than men, you have nothing to be ashamed of when you suffer and to God be the glory. Even if you have to pay the consequences, and even if that means death. Let's read verses 17 through to 19. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Verse 17 speaks of judgment. First of all, the house of God is mentioned. The judgment in the church 
is not one that leads to damnation. The house of God is the church. It's not a judgment that leads to damnation. Rather, it is precisely what we've been considering this morning. Fiery trials that are as a refiner's fire, serving to purify all who belong to Jesus. That's the purpose of these fiery trials. God putting you through those fiery trials and removing all the rubbish, all the dross, as he conforms you to the image of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing process. And that's why the fiery trials are ongoing. More for some than others, depending on God's decree. God, depending on his purpose for each one of his people, his redeemed. Beyond that, the judgment of God and damnation extends to all who obey not the gospel of God. Make no mistake about it, the wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to obey not the gospel. It means that you do not believe in Jesus. And John chapter 3, the last verse, verse 36, tells us very clearly that those who believe have everlasting life. Those who do not believe in the Son, they, sh- they shall not see life and the wrath of God abides on them. The wrath of God is upon you for good reason. If you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who do you think you are? It's ridiculous. It's prideful, it's prideful, it's sin. And the wrath of God abides on all of you. When Jesus shall come again with his mighty angels, he will say to all who have not obeyed the gospel, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's not my purpose to try and frighten people into the kingdom. I can't do that. That's not how it works. But these words are in the Bible for a reason. To show us the the situation that we are in when if we are not in a saving relationship with Jesus. It's there for our good, in other words. The picture that Peter has painted of Christians partaking in Christ's sufferings and being reproached for his name is one of fiery trials. That's what we've seen this morning. For that reason, in verse 18, Peter describes Christians as being scarcely saved. In other words, being saved through much pain and difficulty. However, even in their pain and their difficulty, they rejoice in their Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, as they look forward to his coming and they look forward to his glory being revealed. They have every reason to rejoice, even in their sufferings. Finally, look at verse 18 again. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, That's those who are trusting in Christ. They're having their fiery trials now. And it is through those trials that they are being saved. They are saved 
through faith in Jesus, and that 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 salvation becomes um, publicly declared, if you like, when Jesus will come again and He will gather up His redeemed and take them to be with Him. That final salvation. So that's the first bit of verse 18. If the righteous scarcely be saved. Look at the second bit there. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So, verse 18. There are just two categories of people. The righteous who have the fiery trials now. And the ungodly sinners who will be cast into the lake of fire when Jesus shall come in judgment. Both categories there, the righteous and the ungodly sinners, both of them are equally guilty of having sinned and having come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. However, the difference is that the righteous are people who have repented and who now stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, who became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as he bare away their sins. That is what separates them. Consequently, their acceptance before God is in Jesus. They commit the keeping of their souls to God in well-doing, and the Son of God is with them in their fiery trials. I'll finish with a question. Which category are you in? The righteous or the ungodly sinners? Amen.